all have our biases. So, you know, go talk to somebody who disagrees with you and thinks you're wrong. And then bring that work back to the story that you're telling. And it can only become stronger. Welcome to the Thousand Roads Podcast. I'm Tom Cachado, and my guest is June Cross, a documentary filmmaker with an Emmy, a Peabody, and DuPont Columbia Journalism Award to her name. She also directs the documentary journalism program at the Columbia University Journalism School, where she founded its documentary specialization back in 2010. And so you can say she's helped bring not only documentary films, but also a lot of documentary filmmakers into the world. As such, I wanted to speak with her not only about her own films, which include Wilhelmina's War, about folks in South Carolina living with HIV, and the autobiographical Secret Daughter that she did for Frontline, which you'll hear about, but also what she teaches her students about the craft and ethics of doc filmmaking, and how her own thoughts and practices regarding those things have evolved over the years. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and that's about all you need to know. June, welcome. It's always good to connect with you. Indeed. Glad to see you, Tom. Always. I'm wondering if you have noticed uh, any change in the attitudes of your students from when you first got to Columbia Journalism to today with regard to how they position themselves as journalists and as documentary filmmakers. Uh, I think they were more interested probably in, in what we think of as investigative or the sort of old school, I'm going to reveal some wrongdoing in the early now they're more interested in telling either personal stories or more intimate stories. And part of that is I've focused, I've refocused the work we do from the sort of old uh, Walter Cronkite model to a more character-driven model. And I'm actually in the midst of thinking about refocusing it again because I'm now tired of the I feel like the character-driven model puts so much emphasis on the individual that we ignore the systemic issues that so many individuals find themselves in. And no matter what your degree of its initiative or how many bootstraps you have, you cannot pull yourself out of some situations. Um, so I'm now thinking actively about how to find a balance between the character-driven and this sort of Walter Cronkite you know, whatever, Dan Rather approach. But the students also, I think, are more interested in a more personal style and how to find their own voices, which is very difficult, as you know. I mean, we spend our lives trying to find our voices. I think I had done, I had done, I had been a news producer for about 20 or 25, 25 years before I started doing documentaries. So I already, I had a an idea of what I wanted to say, and I don't know how as a um, as someone in their middle 20s or early 30s, I would have begun to approach that process. I never got a degree in journalism, so uh, I just started doing it. But when I started, there was more, when you and I started, we had more mentoring at the places where we were working that they somebody would take you under wing and say, hey, this is how you do that. And that doesn't happen anymore. So I sort of think of graduate school as a replacement mentoring Interesting. I wonder if it doesn't happen as much because the technology has changed so much that individuals really can make entire films. Whereas in the old days, one person was the shooter, and one person was the sound person, and one person was the editor, and one was the producer, and maybe another one was asking questions. And now that's one person is all five of those people now. And, and so I think it's hard to get into a mentoring situation. And I also think the um, reduction in staffing 
at all of the news divisions and all of the other places, you know, like everywhere that does video, they everybody's like working on five things at once. And there's also not the same depth of experience. You know, I mean, the editors that my students end up working for are like 10 or 12 years out of school. You know, whereas I remember working with people who were like 30 years into their careers by the time I got there. You know, um, And I just don't think that same, you know, the industry doesn't feed that same depth of experience anymore. So a lot of things have changed. The whole world has changed. Let's talk about the film that in some ways, I think it's fair to say, put you on the map. <laughs> My calling card. Which was the film called Secret Daughter that you made for Frontline. It was autobiographical, but it really was, uh, besides being a great film, I think also really a film in the public interest. Mm -hmm. It was about you, but it was also about race in America. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you approach that, being a journalist, Secret Daughter is the story. I find it easier when I don't use the first person pronoun. Secret Daughter is the story of a biracial child who was not raised by her white mother, but was sent to live with black friends of the family in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Her white mother ultimately marries a TV star in Hollywood, and the child in Atlantic City goes back and forth. Um, between Atlantic City and Los Angeles on school breaks. And ultimately, and Secret Daughter is her attempt to come to terms with the different prisms of her life. My black father, who was also an entertainer, my white stepfather, who was an entertainer, my the decisions that my white mother made, um, and the reality that she wouldn't be who she was without the foundation that was laid by the family, the black family that actually raised her. Her being you. Her being me. Yes, I'm sorry. I go back into that. <laughs> you, you, you did flip in and out there just slightly into the first person. So right. did you say as you were making that film, I am journalist June Cross doing a piece of journalism? Mm -hmm. I did. I was, uh, I was doing a story in the third person about somebody else. Did not start out to make a film about my family. It was a story about race in America. And the core question I wanted to explore was, how do white people think about race? There had been a series of films, series of documentaries, and most notably up to that point, one that the journalist Bill Moyers made um, that really explored how African Americans felt about race. And I was really tired of seeing black people interviewed about what it was like to be black in America. And I was like, you know, the, the neuroses here is among white Americans, not among black Americans. <laughs> um, and so I really wanted to try to explore that. And then how to get at that question was the problem. And it started out, I spent a lot, I spent about a year or a year and a half just researching the history of race in America in a very deep sort of way. And there was a woman named Freddie Washington who had done a movie, was an actor in a movie called Imitation of Life, in what she plays a daughter who's very, whose mother is dark-skinned and she's this light-skinned child. And Freddie herself was a very light-skinned actor, actress. And she had never been able to carve a place for herself in Hollywood. So I started out, I was thinking Freddie's Dead is going to be the name of the movie, name of the doc. But Freddie died... 
while I was thinking about this. And then all of Freddie's friends were also dead because she was like 96 or 97 when she was dead. So I was like, okay, well, everybody's dead. I can't do that film. Then I was talking to uh, Amiri Baraka's daughters about possibly doing something because he had married um, a white Jewish woman, his first marriage. And he had two daughters, Lisa Jones and Kelly Kelly Jones. Um, But then he divorced them and married a black woman by whom he had sons. So then I was talking to Lisa and Kelly. Neither one of them wanted to get their mother involved in the miasma of talking about what had happened in their family, first when their mother married their dad and then when their dad left to marry a black woman because it was deemed politically incorrect to be married to a white woman in the late 60s. Um, So then uh, I talked to Anna DeVere Smith about working with me and interviewing black people who had passed the actor Anna Devere Smith, who did uh, Twilight, and who is expert in playing many different roles of many, many different, different people. Yeah, and I was thinking maybe we could work on something together. And somehow, in the process of doing talking with her about it, I ended up telling her, and later also talking to my executive producer at Frontline about my own background. Both of them were so like so fascinated, and Anna was like, "Why don't you just get your mother to go on camera? She understands how white people think in America." Yeah, and I was like, my mother's never going to do this. Yeah. Um, and then David Fanning, the executive producer at Frontline, was like, could, do you think you could do this story for Frontline? And I was like, oh, there's no freaking way my mother is ever going to go on, <laughs> ever going to go on national television and admit she's my mother. Well, that's now the opening line of the film. So it was a long process, and all of that took like two years. I, you know, it took me a lo- it took me months to work up the nerve to ask my mother to go on camera. Then I recorded an interview and forgot to turn on the mic, so I had a three-hour silent interview, which I included in the film. I think I was doing transparency before I even knew what transparency was. So, and then we spent like eight months editing. But that was as much an act of journalism for you as making Wilhelmina's War. It was. I, I did the archival research myself. I had never really done any archive research, but I like went to ABC and CBS and NBC and walked into, in those days, those were the three places that you went. And then there were other places. I discovered there were there was a whole world of archival footage that I didn't even know about. You know, all these other places that do nothing but save archive. Um, we didn't have digital in those days. It was all tape. In fact, I remember the the footage for A Secret Daughter took up nine gigs of space, which was more than any other film had ever done at Frontline up until that moment. (laughs) Now nine gigs is like nothing. Um, But anyway, had I had somebody else do the archival work, I would never have found that moment where I find my dad holding me in June of whatever, 1954, that I discovered. But I discovered it because I was the one looking at it, and I recognized my dad and then I had to put together two plus two. Like you know, this is the this is June of nineteen fifty four. I was born in January. I have a I have an older sister, but in nineteen fifty four she would have been six. So like I literally I'm like sitting there watching this, and I'm like, oh my god, that's that's video, that's film, that's actual primary footage of my dad holding me, and I never knew my father. I met him as an adult when I was like twenty nine. So. That's journalistic research. That's what we do. Do you find in your world, whether your professional filmmaking world or your journalism school world, that you run into people who find a conflict 
between what documentary film is and what journalism is? Less so because these students are coming to a journalism program. We actually interview them before they arrive. And I weed out the ones <laughs> that say I want to do, um, I've always wanted to express myself or, you know, one of the questions I ask is, why are you coming to a journalism school instead of a film school? And if what they really want to do is self-expression, then I say you really should go to a film school because we're, we're doing, we're going to forefront information or at least revelation about a situation. You know, the, the sign on the front of the Pulitzer building is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And that's sort of our... And that's our byword. So if what you want to do is make experimental films, although I'm not, uh, I'm fine with experimental methods in the film, um, then the film school is across the street in Dodge Hall, and I encourage you to apply over there. And actually, one of our students from last year has rolled out of the journalism school and into the film program. So um, I'm really, you know, I'm really intrigued. I've often wanted to figure out a way to work to literally build a bridge between journalism and film, but it's just... The expense is ridiculous. Columbia is already too expensive. In an imaginary world where you could do that, where you did have the money, yeah. what is the bridge you would build? And it's from it would go from what to what? It would go from visual storytelling and editing to journalism. Around. Although it's, I've noticed it's very difficult to get film students to learn how to do research and and the sort of footwork that journalists do. So you could do it either way, I guess. Maybe it's journalists who want to learn film. The thing that I'm always feeling like they don't know enough of is how do you shoot a seven or a 10 minute scene? You know, like there's still, it's very difficult to actually shoot a scene that unfolds in front of you in a way that makes it compelling. Do you think there's a different set of ethics for people who call themselves journalists versus people who call themselves filmmakers? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pay anybody to appear in one of my films. Um, because you're a journalist. Because I'm a journalist. And, yeah. you, and you teach that as well. I do teach that. Yeah. So, I mean, there may be somewhere on the back end after the film is out, <laughs> you know, if it somehow became hugely successful, I wouldn't be opposed to sharing some of the profit. But I don't know any, I mean, even um, Michael Moore's film, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, which is the highest grossing documentary of all time, is something like the, I don't know, 600 and something most popular highest grossing movie of all time. So it's not like anybody's out here making money on these things. I have, as I've, as the industry has matured, worked harder with my students to think about collaboration and making it clear to those who participate in their films that what the deal is here you know like they will i give them permission to show a rough cut or a fine cut to make sure that there's no inaccuracies which is something that i never did when i was a, a pure journalist working for cbs the idea in that case being that if you allowed someone to see in advance they might try to influence or actually influence the journalism yes you didn't want anyone to have input to your film before it aired. I mean, I did a film about my mother and she didn't see it until it broadcast on television, um, <laughs> which I think now is probably kind of harsh um, if I was doing that film today. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a sort of a tenet. I've relaxed on that one a little bit and they say, you know, you can write the release so that, you know, they have the option to 
check it for accuracy and make sure that you've not made any giant mistakes. And I'm actually glad I did that. It saved me a giant step at one point in a film that I was working on where I showed a rough cut and the one of the participants caught a huge mistake I had made in the reporting. And I was very grateful. So I don't think non-collaboration is, you know, non-collaboration is not an option, I don't think, at the, in the year 2023. You made a film called Wilhelmina's War. Um, it involves a, a young woman who was born HIV positive, living in, in uh, I don't want to give a, I don't want to say too much ever about what's in a film because I want people to watch films, but certainly living in very difficult circumstances. Can you tell me a bit about your making of that film, your relationship with her in light of what we've been talking about with you being a journalist? I actually started that film with a former student. Uh, who was the one who actually found Wilhelmina and her granddaughter, Deschal. Eventually, I ran out of money, and my former student had to go off and earn money because she had student loans. And then I had to form my own relationship with Wilhelmina, which was very different. And I didn't walk in. I didn't tell her I was a journalist. I was just this person who would show up every two weeks making this documentary. <laughs> I don't think I ever said, I never uttered the word journalism as I'm interested in making this film about you because you're doing all this work. You have five, you're like the caregiver in your family and you're doing, you know, you have five family members who are living with HIV. South Carolina was a state that was then embroiled in the debate over whether or not to expand Medicaid as part of Obamacare. Um, and they didn't want to do it because South Carolina, 25% of the state of South Carolina would be Medicaid eligible. They still don't have, uh, have an expanded Medicaid. So I'm interested in doing the story about just about the healthcare system in South Carolina and why it's so screwed up. And we developed a totally different kind of con of relationship. So I'll say first that when you're when you're a journal when you're a daily journalist and you can like go in and interview somebody and leave, that's a totally different relationship than when you're spending five years documenting. You know this because you've done this. You know when you're spending so much time deeply enmeshed in somebody's lives and you know their ins and outs and what they eat for breakfast and. <laughs> You know, you end up uh, you end up developing an entirely different relationship with them. Um, it did get a little sticky after the film ended. She had signed the release on day one, but five years later, she didn't remember signing the release. And what she said, and it caused some tension between us because she was like, she felt like she should own a part of the film, and I was like, Mina. I've sunk in like $50,000 of my own money into this film. And yeah, I appreciate all your time, but that doesn't, you don't have part ownership in this. It's, you know, my film. But then when it appeared on PBS, it got nominated for an Emmy. She felt like all of this, there were a number of things happening. She thought, one, that when it aired, everything in South Carolina was going to change and basically nothing changed. And then secondly, she thought that she was going to get a whole lot of money. So what I did was when we would have screenings, people wanted to give her money as a result of the film. And I just said, fine, it, she got all that money. You know, she got probably, I'm not going to say give a number, but she got a... Just from um, people just from people who wanted to help just out. Just from people who wanted to donate. I did set up a GoFundMe page for her 
granddaughter, Deschal, who wanted to, um, who was then being homeschooled and needed to get her uh, high school diploma. Uh, and she wanted to do it online. Uh, so I did that. And I also paid the granddaughter to write a blog to help publicize the film. So those are all gray areas, right? But none of them, none of them impacted the film per se. And in the film, I did, I did make it clear where I entered the film and actually did intercede. Uh, there was a point at which uh, Deschel had been shamed on, slut shamed on Facebook. And there was a point where I was really worried about her mental health. And I actually did end up taking her to a conference of women living with HIV so that she could find out that she, so that she could meet other people who were living with this disease and discover that it was possible to be a human being and live on planet Earth and be okay. And I revealed that in the film. There's certainly a movement wherein some people are going beyond that mm-hmm. and actually paying participants in their films and even crediting those people as producers. Is that something that has come up in your journalism classes or that you've taught them? No, but I mean, you know, this is the celebrity model, you know, so all those documentaries we see about Beyonce or uh, Jay-Z, or who's the other one that there was a, um, um, I'm, not, I'm not knocking that. But what about regular folk? I haven't seen any docs about regular folks. Are we talking about Tiger King? <laughs> I don't consider that in the joke. That's infotainment, and that's another whole thing. Uh, you know, I mean, Netflix at this point isn't even buying documentaries unless they're about celebrities or outrageous characters or true crime. What are the opportunities, if there are any, for your students once they get their degree to do what you would consider journalistic documentaries and be able to make a living. Certainly, PBS Frontline is a great place for that, but not everybody can work for Frontline. Although Frontline takes like three or four of our students every year as fellows. Some go to the news hour. I have students in all of the networks. Two of my former students are senior producers for NBC Nightly News now. Some are working for uh, the digital outlets of the various sort of legacy network channels. Uh, Some go to CNN documentaries. Um, A few every year end up working with independent filmmakers of various stripes. So people go to Jigsaw. People go to... um, Alex Gibney's company. And some are just like out there. And our students end up... uh, We had one who won the student Oscar last year. She, her student film ended up at The New Yorker, and she's now launching her second film. So some just go out there and start hustling and trying to do it. There are some opportunities then. Um, Mm -hmm. But when you mention the NewsHour or NBC Nightly News, that's not really documentary work if they really want to... If they really want to be documentary filmmakers. Pure journalistic documentary of what you're thinking about, no. But I like to think that I'm training long-form visual storytellers of whatever stripe, and they may end up at the New York Times or the Washington Post. The the idea of running an independent production company with all that entails as a graduate out of school is, I think, a high bar. So people people end up making their way. I've always been, I'm amazed. I, I wouldn't downplay the the skills of bringing what we do to the networks. It's not documentary, but there are documentary techniques that make the news more engaging. Um, so they end up doing really all kinds of things. And what I'm 
hopefully I'm training them to do is to question the system, to figure out how to make a difference. I used to talk about training training a cadre to question the status quo ante, and I still think of it that way. So for me, they don't have to go out and be Abby Disney's, you know. <laughs> they don't have to go out and be Alex Gidney's. Um, and they may end up working for those folks, but if they're questioning, if they're doing what journalists do, which is afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, I'm I'm down with that. In terms of ethics, can you describe what you are teaching to your students? To cause no harm. That sounds like the journalistic Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, it is a journalistic Hippocratic Oath. Um, you know, I was we were having a conversation the other day in regards to a hire and. One of our deans, who's not a documentary person, talked about um, the sort of, you know, not paying people, not, you know, not letting them see your rushes and all this. This sort of the code that you and I probably grew up under. And I said, I have I have broken that code in some way or another on every film I have made. And the difference is that I know where the gray areas are and I know how far I can go before I've crossed the line. Um, the students don't. <laughs> so I try to give them uh, a firmer idea in terms of um, paying people, becoming their friends. A lot of them want to become friends, you know, and it's like, no, you're you're not friends. Uh, you can reveal some things about yourself, but like you're not sharing your diary. There's a boundary you need to build even while you're trying to do this film. You know, you have to be clear in the beginning about what the what the relationship is and be clear in your own mind about it, which is, I think, where most of them, you know, they so desperately want these participants to be subjects in their film. They're afraid. Like we had a long conversation uh, last week about releases and nobody had gotten anyone to sign a release yet. And I was like, please, you know, and they, they were afraid to put a piece of paper in front of them. And I was like, well, look, we can come up with a simple release. But they felt that the ones I had online were way too complex. The one, like the one you sent me, <laughs> I'm sure, um, you know, but we now, I tr I'm trying to come up with a simpler form of release because uh, we've had some issues. You know, we had one group who did a, the film won an Oscar and then the person that the film was about Set, had never signed the release um, because they were afraid to have them sign. They were afraid to broach that subject because he was sort of prickly. And then he ended up sending a cease and desist letter and it got crazy. And then ultimately, like three years later, he decided he liked the film and they could go show it wherever they wanted to. But I was like, really? <laughs> you know, you could have just had him sign and release on the first day. I just get him to do it on the first day. It's part of this is what our relationship is. You are agreeing to be in my film and I am going to edit the footage and I may or may not show you a cut of the film before it's done, depending on how you and I feel about this. And I will own the copyright to this after it's done. And you need to be clear about that. Um, there are certainly a lot of people in the industry right now, thoughtful people, um, mm -hmm. who don't think that should be the model anymore, who think that the releases are onerous and that the person... The participants really should be partners or something approaching partners, and that the film ought to advance the cause of the community that's being filmed. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you've thought about that at all, and how whether you think there's something wrong with that, or something, or it's simply different from what you're teaching and what you're doing. There's a continuum from and you know, like the co-collaborative 
group at MIT has done a series of reports on this that I find really interesting. I like to think of myself as somewhere in the middle, maybe leaning a little bit towards co-collaboration. But I would feel weird about co-producing something with somebody in... There was a film called The Territory that aired on National Geographic this year. It was really about an indigenous tribe in the middle of the Amazon whose land was being systemically stolen by Bolsonaro, uh, President Bolsonaro, during the period in which he was president, uh, before the most recent election. It was obvious that the filmmaker and the members of the tribe were collaborating in a very deep way about the making of that film. And at the end of the day, the chief of the tribe was making the film and actually exposing people who were staking out a claim to land that was not theirs. And I actually didn't have a problem with that because in that instance, the gap between me as a European trained person, even though I'm African-American, I'm trained in a Western tradition. But if I were going to go into the heart of the Amazon and approach a group of indigenous people whose land is being stolen and I don't understand anything about their culture... I'd want to know what the world looks like from their perspective. And there are these wonderful shots in there of just a close-up of a bird or a flower or a plant where you really see what they're seeing that you and I might be me inclined to just show as a wide shot, but seeing what the importance of these things are to them. And actually, in my own first documentary, honestly, I did a film called A Kid Kills, was my first documentary, and I did give the camera to the kids that I was giving. Uh, this was a gang in Orchard Park uh, in Boston. And I did train the students, the the kids, they were high schoolers, how to use cameras. And I had them make their own film. It's like, show me, show me what this place looks like through your own eyes. And I honestly don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it journalistically as long as... As I was in the film, I was transparent about it. I taught them to make a film about Orchard Park so that we could see where they live through their own eyes. Uh, where I have a problem with it is when, when we're not transparent and we pretend like we were the ones that did it all, or they shot everything and we pretend we did it. So it sounds like the lines aren't always entirely clear. They're not. And... Are you presented with those situations by your students as well, where they are trying to figure out ethically, what do I do here? I I am. And what I usually say is be transparent. Just, just say what it is you're doing. Even that sounds like something where you have evolved as a uh-huh. uh, traditionally, you know, in air, I'm, I'm making air, air quotes here that people can't see, traditionally trained journalist. That is probably something you would not have approved of in your early days in the business. Am I right about that? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Everything's changed in the last 30 or 40 years. A lot of documentarians now consider themselves activists and documentaries. (laughs) And if they have a slash in their title, it would be documentarian slash activist rather Mm -hmm. than documentarian slash journalism. Do you run into that at the J School? And what are your thoughts about it? I don't so much because we beat it out of them fairly early. Um, I don't personally have a problem with it. I think, you know, there are entire companies that do that kind of work. And a lot of people bring a lot of my students, actually, who decide they want to be independent documentary filmmakers, end up bringing journalistic techniques to activist films. And I don't 
have a problem with that. I mean, the journalism world doesn't pay very well, and by and large, um, Partners in Health or the Red Cross is going to pay you a hell of a lot more for a film than the New York Times will. Um, so I get it, and I don't have, I don't particularly have a problem with it. I just want to keep the emphasis, as we, as I sometimes say in class, I want to keep the emphasis on the right syllable. So, <laughs> you know, is it... That's funny. You know, when I think about journalism, I'm thinking, is it accurate? Has the information been verified? And is it fair? Um, so activists tend to not care so much if it's fair, but I at least want them to talk to someone who disagrees with their point of view so that they've tested their hypothesis. And that is an exercise I put my students through because we all have our biases. So, you know, go talk to somebody who disagrees with you and thinks you're wrong and then bring that work back to the story that you're telling. And it can only become stronger. Well, June Cross, thank you for joining me. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Thousand Roads podcast. Thanks, as always, to my colleague and research assistant, Pallavi Deshpande, and to composer Ben Cuomo. And please do come back again. If you want to reach out, please do at thousandroadspod at gmail.com. And if you have a second, please rate, review, and subscribe. I'd appreciate it.